All right, it's good to be back with you in our study of Acts, the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 3 today. Um, wow, Acts chapter 3, it's quite a passage. Serves several important purposes. It, for one thing, it gives us a glimpse into the signs and wonders that were described in a general way in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, where it says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So this is our first real example of that. It lets us see Peter as the primary spokesman for the apostles again. It gives us another excellent example of an early evangelistic apostolic sermon. So this is another sermon from an apostle in the early, early years of the church in a Jewish context. It also sets the stage for what's coming in the book, which is persecution. Um, this incident began a cycle of trouble that would scatter much of the Jerusalem church to other areas, which is a significant thing that happens in the book of Acts. So this Acts 3 event was so significant that it attracted a large amount of attention and under God's providence, it attracted official attention, which we'll talk about at the end. So here's what happened to get this whole thing sort of launched. So Acts chapter three, verse one it says, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John, about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Wow, that's quite a story. Let me just kind of walk you back through some of the details there. Um, at the temple, there were three hours set aside for public prayer. There was 9 a.m., then noon, and then 3 p.m. And Christians were still worshiping in the temple. The church was very large, and that was really the only building large enough for such a large number of people. And they would have met under those giant porticos of Solomon, as they're called. And uh, in in Jewish culture at that time a new day begins not at midnight like in our culture but at 6 a.m. And uh, so the ninth hour would be nine hours from six which is 3 p.m. So this is the third hour the third time of prayer during the day during the ninth hour. So there by this very ornate gate called the beautiful gate sat a crippled man. His friends would bring him there each day to beg alms and he was lame from birth. Now think about that. Uh, he had never stood. His muscles were completely undeveloped. He had never balanced on his legs ever. 
in his whole life. So Peter and John come to the gate for the 3 p.m. hour of prayer. And you can kind of picture him saying whatever his he said every single day of his life so he might have enough uh, resources for some food and maybe a room somewhere. Alms, alms for a poor cripple, alms, alms for a crippled man. I imagine it was something like that, probably rather rote and repetition since he did it all the time, every day. Uh, as people were headed to worship the God of Abraham, he might be trying to get their attention if they wanted to do some good deed before they approached God in prayer. They could give him a little something and that helped keep him going. So he notices people as they pass, but he doesn't really make eye contact with them. He, this is kind of the usual people passing by. Alms, alms for a poor cripple. Peter stops. And he says, look at us. That would get his attention. He probably expected to receive some gift from them. Peter says, I do not possess silver or gold. So he's probably thinking, oh, I see. Okay, all right. But what I do have, I give you. That might have got his attention. Maybe a little bit of curiosity there. And then Peter just says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And Peter grabs his hand and starts to lift him and suddenly power flows into his legs and his ankles and his feet and perfect balance. It's something he has never felt in his entire life, working limbs. So Peter pulls him up. He leaps to his feet. He's standing with perfect balance and total strength. He can't believe it. He walks with them into the temple and verse eight says, walking and leaping and praising God, leaping. So listen, everyone who ever came through that gate regularly, including the priests and the teacher of the law and the Pharisees, they would all know this man. Verse 10, they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. So, there had been signs and wonders going on at some level amongst the church community, the church family, but this is very public. And Peter and John are standing there seeing all this and the crowd is full of wonder and amazement. So I think one word pops into Peter and John's mind. Opportunity. Opportunity. Sometimes the Lord puts you in a marvelous position to testify about him. That often happens in medical situations, um, famous athletes, Oftentimes if they do something really spectacular and get a lot of media attention if they're Christians they often use that to say something about the Lord to thank God to honor God to talk about Jesus Christ being their um, support and hope and things like that. Many years ago I think it was in the 90s um, but I remember the man Scott O'Grady he was a F-16 pilot he was shot down over Bosnia and he spent like six days barely surviving eating bugs and doing all that with people looking for him all around sometimes they'd be within a couple yards of him and not notice him and then the marines went in when they figured out where he was and did this very dramatic helicopter rescue and got him out and he became a big hero in america for you know how the news cycle goes for a while for several weeks he was a big name and uh he was a strong christian and when they brought him back interviewed him on cnn he talked about the lord in fact he said um First of all, I want to thank God. I know his love for me and my love for him delivered me and brought me here. So he didn't just say thank God. He talked about his love for God and God's love for him. He made it very personal. And after that, he talked about Christ in multiple settings, many opportunities. He went on a speaking circuit and preached the gospel, basically. He shared Christ. 
So um, the same kind of situation here. Peter sees the crowd reacting to this event, this miracle, and he speaks right up because he has their attention and he asks them a question. So it says in verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon. That's one of those big open areas with a covering over it, a portico. Full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people. He asked a question. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our power or piety we made him walk? Okay, so people's attention's drawn to them, Peter and John, because they're with this guy. In fact, this guy's clinging to them. And Peter's using that and he says, why are you looking at us? Now, it's totally normal for them to look at us, but he wants to plant a thought in their head. That's why he's asking that. Why are you looking at us as though we had this power or that some extra piety is in us that enabled us to do this? So why are you looking at us? So he's taking their amazement and literally gets them thinking about who they are wondering at, why they are wondering. And he tells them, They have misplaced their amazement because he says, why do you gaze at us as if it is by our own power or piety that we made him walk? And then he launches into this perfect sermon, perfect for a Jewish audience in Jerusalem at this particular time. So he starts with God, the God of Abraham and quickly points them to Jesus and then just lets them have it just like he did on the day of Pentecost about their guilt and uh, their responsibility for the death of Jesus, God's chosen son. So verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So he's packing it all in that one sentence there. He starts talking about Jesus and what they did to him. First thing, he was God's servant. He talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He has glorified his servant, Jesus. So he was God's servant. But you, Peter says, delivered him up. You disowned him before Pontius Pilate when he wanted to release him. You chose a violent criminal to be released instead of Jesus. Verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you. Can there be a greater injustice than that? A a greater crime than giving over the son of God to these people and then calling for the freedom of a murderer? Well, there's one thing that's worse than that, actually delighting in and participating in the sentencing of Jesus to death. That is even worse. Verse 15, but put to death the prince of life. You killed the author of life. He tells them very succinctly and directly what they did, what they were part of. And then he flows right into what God did. So that's what they did. What did God do? The one who Jesus is the one, verse 16, whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. There's that word. There it is, a fact to which we are witnesses. Every sermon in the book of Acts bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus. That's in every single sermon. Every sermon follows the mandate that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. This is one great theme of apostolic preaching that they saw the risen Christ. Christianity is built on the resurrection. And Peter's point here beyond just bearing witness is that God confirmed who Jesus is by raising him from the dead. So remember now Peter the, the man speaking has just made a cripple a cripple from birth walk and leap about just the sort of thing Jesus used to do. Same kind of miracle. And Peter's telling these folks that they sinned a great sin by handing Jesus over to death. And now he turns to the subject of faith. Watch how he does this. It's quite masterful. God raised Jesus from the dead. He's bearing witness to that. Then verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man. Whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him. Has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You see the logic here? It's kind of inescapable. This faith that was exercised in Jesus' name is the cause of this miracle that you've just seen. And this completely backs up Peter's testimony of the resurrection. They know that Peter performed a miracle of power. He just did it. Peter tells them the power for this is not in him, but in Jesus' name. And since the healing miracle they can see with their own eyes, Peter's testimony of Jesus' resurrection must be true as well. Jesus lives and God honors this work that was done in his name. This miracle supports the greater miracle of the resurrection. And right about now they might start to be processing and understanding how great the crime was of putting to death the holy and righteous one. Choosing a murderer to be released instead. Guilty. Guilty. And now that they are grasping this, Peter starts to open for them a door of salvation. Verse 17. And now brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. So I know you acted ignorantly. You did this horrible, horrible sin, but you didn't really understand what all you were doing. So the question is, and it's a good question to think about, can people be ignorant and culpable? Can they be ignorant and guilty? The answer is yes, they certainly can. This whole, the whole sinful condition of human beings blinds us to the truth we are fallen creatures it blinded them to who Jesus is it blinds people today to who Jesus is of course if they believed he was the Messiah they wouldn't have done what they did right but honestly they should have believed it they had all the evidence in the world and he was the greatest man who ever lived the most perfect man the most holy man the most kind man and he did all these incredible signs and they were happy to see him put on a cross that's willful blindness. It's ignorant because they didn't believe who he was, but it was a sinful ignorance. It was a, a, a willful kind of ignorance. It was a, their sinful hearts would not accept the gift that God had given them. So our blindness 
to what God is doing is part of our sinful nature, our sinful condition. Jesus himself recognized that kind of ignorance even on the cross. Luke 23, 34, Father forgive them. They know not what they do. They're ignorant. But they need to be what? Forgiven. See, they're still guilty even though they don't really understand the depth of what they're doing. They didn't understand the magnitude of their sin. But you can genuinely say they were ignorant, but they needed forgiveness or Jesus would not have prayed that prayer. And the Apostle Paul, I think, is even a better example. He came to this same conclusion about himself. He had blood on his hands. Uh, He wasn't there at the crucifixion, but he violently persecuted Jesus' followers before Jesus got a hold of him. Do you remember how he described himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1? He talks about himself there uh, starting at verse 21 and he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and in unbelief. In verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet, For this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So he saw himself as the foremost sinner and in the same passage he says I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 13. Ignorance is not inherently a sin but this was an, a kind of ignorance. He said, it w- I was ignorant in unbelief. The unbelief part is a sin. Unbelief is a sin. It's, a, it's the primal sin. It's the first sin, if you will. The first human sin was unbelief, not trusting God. That's what our forebears, Adam and Eve, did. Willful unbelief caused Eve to take what she knew was forbidden. And then her husband followed right along. He even more guilty because he had heard God's command about not eating that fruit from God himself. So unbelief is now just a natural part of the human condition. It's it's at the root of so much evil that we do. So yes, people are ignorant of God and Jesus and what it all really means, but their unbelief is promoting all kinds of sin in them and leading them to all kinds of sin. That's the human condition. Now, of course, the Bible says when you profess the truth about Jesus and you know and you understand and you profess it and you claim it and you can articulate it and you understand who he is and then turn away, that's the worst thing of all. Second Peter chapter 2 talks about that. Peter says there are false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them 
bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And then down later in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 he says speaking out arrogant words of vanity they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ they are again entangled in them and are overcome the last state has become for them worse than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. One of my precious memories as a child, I don't remember being a kid very much, but I do remember watching my neighbor's dog throw up and then eat it. That was one of the most vivid <laughs> memories of my childhood because I was like horrified. But he says that's what's like when people go back to the world after they've understood and said they understand all about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and talked about it and praised it and taught people that even and then fell, fell away. It's like a dog eating its own vomit. It's the most disgusting thing. So to claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior and then turn your back on him, that's worse. That's worse than basic unbelief. Judas is much worse than Pontius Pilate. He's probably in a worse place actually. So back to Acts chapter 3. Peter tells them in verse 17 I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. He even acknowledges that they acted ignorantly. So he's opening a door for them. He says I understand you acted in ignorance. And now that Peter's opened the door he invites them in. He gives them the gospel. The path of reconciliation to God. This is something of a unique invitation for that generation of Jews. The covenant people and this is how he puts it for them. Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer he has thus fulfilled. Therefore verse 19 repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That's so beautiful. Two key words there repent and return. Turn away from something and turn to someone. He doesn't say he doesn't say believe here. But if you repent and return you do believe. We talked about that like in Acts chapter 2. That sermon as well. You can't return to the Lord if you don't believe in him. There are some Christian teachers that say repentance is not a part of the gospel call. But it sure is here. Some go so far as to say that Peter and Paul had two different messages. Uh, there's one message for the Jews they need to repent and there's another message for the Gentiles believe. Now not many people teach that but some do and it's totally bogus it's completely wrong it's a no no on that one. It's totally unsupportable by scripture. Paul did call for faith when he preached sometimes. Uh, classic case is the Philippian jailer he didn't have time for a whole sermon the guy said what must I do to be saved? And Paul said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved. That, that's pretty clear. Acts chapter 16 verse 31. To the Gentile Athenians. 
Paul declared their need for repentance. That's what he said, that God was declaring to all men everywhere that they must repent. That's Acts chapter 17. But most clearly, I think the most important verse with regard to this matter that just puts away this sort of silly idea that Jews are supposed to repent and Gentiles are supposed to believe is Acts chapter 26, verse 19. Paul, Paul is standing before Herod Agrippa, the king, describing his own ministry, his ministry to Jews and Gentiles. And he uses the exact language that Peter is using here. Here's, this is it, Acts 26, 19. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and in throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Performing deeds appropriate to repentance. Repent and turn. Those words sound awfully familiar. Those are exactly the words, exactly the Greek words that Peter uses in Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Anyone who turns to God from something else, a belief system, idols, immorality, anger, bad habits, all, all of which are sins. Anyone who turns to God from sin is saved. Repent and return. And God is the God who sent Jesus to pay for sin. Um, he's not any old God. You can't just turn to some God. You have to turn to the God that sent Christ to pay for sin. That God, the real God, the God that lives. So that's really important to remember. Repent is a part of accepting Christ as your Savior. Okay, now another theological point. We mentioned in Acts chapter 2 in the Pentecost sermon that Peter was offering the kingdom to Israel. They killed the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah. That was their sin, but God actually used that sin to bring about the saving sacrifice of Christ for human sin on the cross. So his death makes forgiveness possible because he atones for our sins. But Peter says quite plainly that if they repent and turn to God, accepting Jesus as Messiah, he will come. And I think he must be meaning the kingdom will come. Look at his language in verse 19. Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Send him whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. The restoration of all things is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom, the Messiah's kingdom. Messiah will establish a kingdom of righteousness which will have no end and it will reach to the, all the corners of the earth across the whole world. So there's a principle here uh, generally for all of us that times of refreshing come through repentance and turning to the Lord, salvation. Turning from sin, casting oneself on the Lord for your salvation to be restored to him. Times of refreshing, that's a great phrase isn't it it's such a great way to describe being clean and being in right fellowship with God times of refreshing if you have a sin issue and you're not dealing with it um, if your time with God isn't fresh it, if it if it's labor and it's unsatisfying because there's a barrier there um, sin is just a huge burden isn't it uh, it saps the life it wears you down 
but repent and return and you find refreshing grace in the presence of God when you meet with him. But here in this particular context, I mean that's all generally true for believers, but here in this context it's national. It's national. Peter says the promises can be fulfilled today if Israel embraces the true Messiah now. And who is that? It's Jesus who God raised from the dead who's clearly seen in what happened in the temple that day as well, which was done in his name. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. All the prophets foretold is being held before them. Whether it's a short time or a long time, Peter is clear that Messiah comes two times, once to suffer and once to bring times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Verse 18, he comes once to suffer and then once again to reign over a restored world. So next Peter does what he did in chapter 2. Because he's speaking to people who respect the scriptures. He quotes the Old Testament. Now he uses a different passage this time than he used in chapter 2. This one's from Deuteronomy chapter 18. A really important passage for us because Deuteronomy 18 is essential information for evaluating people who claim that God speaks to them. Prophets. People who say they're prophets. And I'm going to have to restrain myself this morning because um, I'd like to go for about 15 minutes on Deuteronomy 18 as it relates to prophets. But that's not what Peter's talking about today. So um, that's not how Peter's using the passage. The passage is about prophets in general. But verse 18 of chapter 18 of Deuteronomy was always seen as pointing to a special prophet with a higher status than other prophets. And many people understood it also as being the Messiah, that he is the one being talked about there. So here's Peter's quote, verse 22. Moses said, quoting Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says to you. So it's the prophet like me phrase that draws special interest here. Moses was a prophet, but he was much more than a prophet. Um, he was the lawgiver. After Moses, for the next 1400 years, all the prophets that God brought forth, all the prophets that followed him, they did not make rules, they did not make laws, they didn't command anything except following the laws of Moses they always pointed back to Moses for what to do and they pointed ahead for the redemption that God would ultimately provide for a disobedient nation but Moses was the man his law given directly by God was the foundation of their society it built their society so there was always an expectation that someone would come who could be a person of that stature, of that level of authority, who could make law, who could change circumstances. After all, God promised through Jeremiah that a new covenant was coming one day, a covenant that would bring forgiveness and would, in that covenant, God would write his law on people's hearts. So there's an expectation of, of a prophet, a unique prophet like Moses. And you really see that in the Gospels, especially John's Gospel. Um, plainly, when you read through John's Gospel, you see that first century Jews were not looking for a prophet, but the prophet. Here's three examples. 
John chapter 1 verse 45. Philip learns all about Jesus. He gets all excited. He goes to Nathanael and says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. John chapter 6 verse 14. Therefore when the people saw the sign which Jesus had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. John chapter 7 verse 38. Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This is certainly the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. So, some of them viewed it as that prophet person that Moses was talking about. Others said it's the Messiah he was talking about and he's actually the Christ. So there was a discussion going on right there. But he's not a prophet. He's the prophet. Maybe even the Christ. That's what they were thinking. So that was a common expectation in, in the first century amongst the, the Jews in that area. And Peter is quoting that very passage in Deuteronomy 18. And then back in Acts, Acts chapter 3 verse 23, Peter offers a real stern warning, kind of paraphrasing that Deuteronomy quote. It will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. There's a harsh judgment, an eternal judgment, utterly destroyed for not listening to that prophet when he comes. So this is their scripture he's using. They are accountable to God for how they receive this prophet, the Messiah, when he comes. They're accountable for that. And what has happened in their lifetimes? What has happened in their experience? Jesus. God sent Jesus. And he ministered among them for several years. They rejected him. They slew him. And God raised him from the dead. So now Peter brings the message home. Verse 24. Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. To you first. All the families of the earth will be blessed in him. But as the covenant people God sent him to you first Peter says. It's on you now to receive his blessing by repenting. Verse 26 really answers the most important question you can ask. Why did Jesus come? And the answer is to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's why he came. That's such good news. And God's chosen people get to hear that news first. It goes to them first. That four thousand year old promise to Abraham is fulfilled 
now on that day. What an opportunity. What an amazing opportunity to have the kingdom and have forgiveness and to be clean and to embrace the risen Christ. But Peter does not get to finish his sermon. The priests come in chapter 4 with the temple police and they're not happy. They've come to arrest Peter and John. So the fate of Israel is about to be determined over the next days, weeks, and months that follow. Israel as a people have to make a decision. What are they going to do with these guys, Jesus' disciples, who are doing miracles in his name that are unquestioned and widely known. What are they going to do with them? Soon, Jesus' apostles will stand before the national leaders of Israel, the same people that Jesus stood before. And that's what chapter 4 is all about. So come back next time. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the wonderful message that Peter gave. It's so clear what you want from us to humble ourselves, to forsake our unbelief, to repent, and to turn to you, the living God, who sent the unique Son, Jesus, God the Son, into this world to bear the sins of humanity. And you raised him from the dead so that we would know what he claimed about himself and what he accomplished is true. May we not be unbelieving but believing. And may we rejoice in the times of refreshing you send us, even in this fallen world, even before the kingdom, as believers in you. We're so thankful. May we represent you well here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Don't forget Christmas Eve service and uh, Thursday night. And then we will be back next Sunday. God bless.